Hey, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. If you have not had a chance to check out the study hub that goes along with the listener's commentary, I would just encourage you to do that. If you're looking for more than the audio, if you want uh, charts and overviews and uh, background data and pictures and all of that to help bring these books to life, all of that is inside the study hub. Plus, there's uh, links to other resources online that I have found valuable and helpful and trustworthy. I'm constantly adding more stuff to that. In fact, I'm working on an overview of the entire Bible in print fashion just to help uh, people have that big framework when they read it. So there's tons of material inside the study hub. So if you have not had a chance to check that out, there's a link down in the notes below. You can check it out there or you can just swing over to listenerscommentary.com. In the upper right corner, there's a thing that says study hub. Click sign up. It'll take you to the, the study hub page where you can learn more about that. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And the topic in this paragraph has to do with elders or eldership. Really, the question that's being answered here is, how should elders carry out their oversight? And how should non-elders relate to them? That's the immediate topic of this paragraph. It's interesting, though, because... The immediate context around this, before this paragraph, is the suffering that the churches are experiencing. And Peter clearly connects his instructions about elders to the sufferings of Christ. So, in some way, Peter sees these instructions as necessary in view of that. The idea seems to be that in view of their suffering... Elders, you've got to take care of the flock. You've got to do it in a self-giving, self-sacrificial way. The church needs this care from you. This guidance, O oh elder, will help them as they deal with the difficulty that they're experiencing. So that seems to be what's going on and how this connects to the topic of suffering. Now, before we look at the passage in detail, just a short note on church leadership in general in view of what Peter says here. First thing to note is this. Peter just assumes that there are leaders in the churches and that the church needs those leaders. Um, that's important, that the church is not this, this sort of thing that has no leadership whatsoever. Peter assumes that there are going to be leaders and the church needs it. The second thing uh, that Peter says here is that he uses three different words for leaders. Uh, he uses the word elder, he uses the verb overseer or oversight, and he uses the verb shepherd or pastor. Um, and this reminds us, which we see this in several other places in the New Testament, uh, that in the early church, there was a group of leaders designated by all of these terms, elders, overseers, pastor, shepherd, that those terms refer to the same group of people who were leaders in the church. Now, in our day and age, we have separated pastors from elders, but it wasn't that way at the beginning. Pastors and elders were one group of people whose whole job it was to care for and oversee the body of Christ. And then the third general thing about leaders to note here, and probably most important, is what Peter focuses on is how the leaders lead and how the church, the members of the church, follow the leaders and how they relate to one another. 
And that's because there's bad leadership for churches and there's good leadership for churches. And it has everything to do with the way elders or pastors lead, which has to do with their character. And that's Peter's primary concern here is how should the elders carry out their oversight and how should non-elders relate to them, and then the whole body relate to each other. So as we listen to Peter's words here, make sure to keep our, uh, your focus on the way leaders are supposed to carry out that role. Here's what Peter says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, notice that therefore, right? Clearly, logically connecting it with what he has said preceding at the end of chapter 4 about suffering and hardship and difficulty. So it's like in view of how hard things are, in view of the hostility you're experiencing, therefore, I urge the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. So Peter's going to go on and he's going to urge some things, exhort some things, specifically of the elders among them. So this is addressed specifically to them, the elders. And Peter describes himself, notice, as a fellow elder, uh, as a witness of the sufferings of Jesus, meaning a witness of Jesus' self-sacrificial love that culminated on the cross, and as a fellow sharer in the glory to come. So with them, he's going to enjoy and experience the glory that is yet to come. And Peter has repeatedly come back to living in light of the glory to come, living in light of the revelation of Jesus. When Jesus appears, that's just showing up over and over and over again in this letter. And it reminds us that that's the way we are supposed to live. We're supposed to live in view of what is coming. Here specifically to the elders, uh, he calls himself this fellow sharer in the glory to come. As you do your elding, O elders, you do so as somebody who knows there's glory coming someday. Now, before we go on and look at what Peter uh, is going to urge of the elders, uh, where did this practice of elders come from? Did like the church just dream it up? And the answer is no, it didn't just dream it up. There were, uh, it was sort of like in both Jewish culture and Greek culture, there were roots of this that they are kind of modeling the practice after. So we see, for example, um, elders in the church fairly early on. Now, in the book of Acts, we see it in Acts 11. We see it in Acts 15. And so it shows up early on in church history, which is somewhat... Uh, this is this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's important to realize that sometimes people are like, when we see the conversation about elders here in 1 Peter or even in the pastoral epistles, oh, see, that's clearly got to be after the time of the apostles because, you know, that's like higher church structure. Read the book of Acts. Elders were showing up in the church from the, the almost from the beginning, as best as we can tell. So uh, it's like, to make that argument means you're going to have to discount what's actually said in the book of Acts. Not only do we see elders early on in the church at Jerusalem there in Acts 11 and Acts 15, Paul appoints elders at the end of his first missionary journey in Acts 14. So it's a well-established practice by that point. So elders show up early on in the church. Now, where did that come from? 
Well, we know that sometimes leaders in Greco-Roman cities could be called elders. And so even in the Greco-Roman environment, they had this category, this concept of leaders who were designated as elders. Not only that, in those same cities, various clubs or various associations that were uh, well-established in uh, those cities sometimes had their leaders called elders. So in the Gentile world, elders was a well-known concept for leaders. But the church, particularly early on, like it was purely Jewish, and it modeled itself initially after the synagogue. And we know that the Jews called their leaders elders. Read the Gospels, right? We see uh, the elders being mentioned in the Gospels. Even in the Old Testament, we see references to the elders of the city. This idea, in other words, of having older experienced men as leaders was common and widespread in both Jewish and Greco-Roman society, and the church seems to have followed suit. So in what follows... Peter is going to give a broad summary of the elders' task, and then he's going to give three specific descriptions of how they should carry out that task. So here's their main responsibility. He says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. So elders, I'm going to urge some things upon you. Here's what I'm urging you to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And the verb shepherd is the same word from which the noun pastor comes from. Pastor, shepherd, shepherd, pastor, verb and noun, all right? And so it was a well-established picture in the Bible for the work of leadership. Leaders were like shepherds, tending to, caring for, providing for the needs of, and protecting the flock, that is God's people, from whatever dangers might come their way. In fact, you see in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, an important chapter, where God calls out Israel's leaders for being bad shepherds. They're self-serving. They don't take care of the flock. They haven't uh, strengthened the weak or sought for the strays. They've been harsh and heavy-handed. And as a result, the flock, that is God's people, Israel, there in Ezekiel 34, is scattered all over the place. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So God says in Ezekiel 34 that he himself will shepherd them. Well, Jesus comes along and says that the people of his day likewise are also like sheep without a shepherd. A pretty clear indictment of the Jewish leaders of his day with a glance back towards Ezekiel 34 that the leaders of his day, being Jews, would have known and would have heard in that context. And so a really pretty clear indictment of the Jewish leaders of his day. So Jesus comes, says that, and then he calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's John chapter 10. In fact, Psalm 23, I think Jesus is echoing that when he calls himself the good shepherd. Psalm 23 says that the Lord is uh, a good shepherd. Well, all of this biblical imagery then can help fill in Peter's words. Shepherds must lay down their life for the sheep. They must take care of them. They must provide for them and protect them and gather them when they wander or stray. This is what Peter has in mind when he says, shepherd the flock of God. That's what he's thinking of. And notice that the flock, the way Peter says it is, it's God's flock. In other words, the people in the church, they belong to God. The church is not their own. The flock is not their own. It's God's flock. 
God owns the flock, and they work for God as shepherds of his flock. They oversee the flock. And so Peter describes their work of shepherding as exercising oversight. That verb oversight is used as a noun in 1 Timothy and Titus for overseers, right? This is what they do. They look after it. They watch over it. So how are they supposed to do that? Well, Peter gives three phrases to describe how they're supposed to exercise their oversight and shepherd God's flock. And those three phrases are structured by saying, not this, but that. And so the first one is this, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Remember the context of John 10, where Jesus calls himself a good shepherd. And in that context, he talks about a mere hireling. That is a shepherd who really has no interest in the flock, He's just doing it um, as a job because he needed a job. He's not one who really cares for the sheep. So when things get tough, he runs. But not the good shepherd there in John chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, that's the same idea here. It's not a mere job. It's not as a have to, but a want to. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily willingly, like I am giving myself fully and wholeheartedly to this because it is important and it's necessary. So I'm willing to do this, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, or literally according to God, that is following his way, walking in his pattern. God himself is one who willingly gives himself to care for others. Well, we should do the same. Ezekiel 34, God's going to shepherd his own flock and he's going to do it right. Well, that's what these elders are being called to do. You imitate God after the pattern you have in God. Do it that way, according to God. So that's the first thing Peter says about how they should shepherd the flock of God. They should do it willingly. The second is this, not with greed, but with eagerness. Not with greed, but eagerness. And greed really isn't strong enough here. The word translated greed really has the idea of like filthy gain. It's a compound word that communicates sort of the sense of disgrace or shame. Like you're, you're, you're doing this really to benefit yourself. And so church leaders must not be in it for personal gain, whether that gain is money or whether that gain is, you know, a power or control or any other kind of self-seeking gain that they can hope to get out of it. No, that's not the way you shepherd the flock of God. You don't do it where you're eager to get some sort of gain for yourself, maybe even in sneaky or underhanded or overbearing or controlling shameful sorts of ways. Not that. Instead, uh, elders must be eager and enthusiastic about caring for the sheep. They've got to be eager for this, enthusiastic about caring for the sheep. And then Third, the third thing Peter's going to say about how they should shepherd the flock of God in verse three is not yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. So don't be heavy handed and domineering, lording it over, right? Don't do it that way. Uh, Jesus taught a totally different vision of authority. In Jesus' vision of authority, it was always authority for the sake of others. That's the whole point of um, 
being a servant of all, right? Like you use your authority, you use whatever position of authority you might have for the sake of others, for their well-being, for their care, for their help, not for yourself, not for control, not just for power and authority. It's a whole different vision of authority and leadership. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 20 is one place where it shows up in the Gospels. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them and those in high positions exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the pattern that Jesus gave us is not serving yourself, but serving others, not being domineering and heavy handed and the big boss, right? And just telling people what to do, not being in control or in charge. It's laying down your life for others. And so that's Peter's point here. Not yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, right? You're not controlling whatever flock you have in a heavy handed sort of way, but by proving to be an example to the flock. Uh, and so instead of leading by power and control in Christ, leaders lead by example. Examples of discipleship. Examples of Christ-likeness. Um, the word translated example, tupos, in Greek means a pattern, a model. So the elders are supposed to be patterns of faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Patterns of doing good in the community when uh, life gets hard. They're patterns of Jesus' way. Now, leading like this is full of self-sacrifice, but it comes with a promise. That's where Peter goes in verse 4. So look at verse 4. He says, If you shepherd this way, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Well, the chief shepherd is Jesus, the good shepherd. He's the ultimate pattern and example of how to shepherd the flock. So when he comes again, Peter says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice that word unfading. It's the same word he used in uh, verse 4 of chapter 1 to describe the inheritance that's waiting for all of God's people. And so here it's applied to the crown of glory. Well, the word translated crown is Stephanos. There's two kinds of crowns in the ancient world. There's the Stephanos crown and there's the diadema crown. More often than not, the Stephanos crown referred to the victor's crown. The kind of crown you might get if you won some sort of athletic contest or something like that. It was used as an award uh, for victory, for winning something. And very often it was a crown woven of um, leaves, right? And so this leaf wreath that you'd put around your head to symbolize your victory. Well, that's just going to fade away. Right? Those leaves are just going to get dry and brittle. It's just going to rot. And that victory is going to be forgotten. Um, but not the crown of glory that's to come when Jesus appears. It's unfading. Uh, for one who has overcome or distinguished himself in Christ, you're going to get a crown that's not made of perishable leaves. You're going to get a crown that's full of of glory and will not fade away. And so that's the promise. And that's really the persuasive appeal offered by Peter to say, so shepherd the flock like this. 
Don't worry about what you get out of it. The Lord, the chief shepherd, will see, and he will reward you with the crown of glory in due time. Now, from there, Peter then turns to, well, what about the rest of the church? What about those who aren't elders? So look at verse 5. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And though it's translated younger men, the word really is just younger ones. It could refer to just the men, younger men. But in uh, the Greek language, a mixed group, a group of men and women, was always referred to by the masculine noun. In Greek, there's masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and neuter nouns. A group of men and women that was mixed was always referred to by the masculine noun. So it's just as likely that it's referring to everyone younger here. And in view of the all of you in the middle of the verse, I think that's probably what we're talking about. Not just younger men, just the younger people in the church. Those who are not elders, in other words. So you who are not elders, you younger ones... Um, that's who we're talking to. And the instruction to them is to, uh, it says, submit yourselves to the elders, like arrange yourself under the elders, just as everyone is instructed to submit themselves to the civic authorities, chapter two, just as servants were instructed to submit themselves to their masters and wives to their husbands. Here, all of those, you younger ones in the church, submit yourselves under the leaders of the church. Arrange yourself under their leadership. That's the responsibility of those who are not elders in the church. And then he addresses everybody in the church, young and old, male and female, all of you, this is what he says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus and his followers made humility a virtue. It wasn't widely viewed that way in Greco-Roman society. But among Jesus's family, this is a fundamental relational practice. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. All of you, right? Young, old, male, female, be humble towards one another. In fact, the Apostle Paul deems humility to be the key to unity and harmony in the church. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, after calling the Christians to, to be unified and harmonious, Paul says this. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider one another more important than yourself. And don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is what it means to clothe yourself with humility towards one another in the church. It means to consider one another more important than yourself. It means don't look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. And then Peter grounds this idea of humility in Scripture. He quotes from Proverbs. He says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is from Proverbs 3.34. God stands against those who are proud is the idea. Those who are self-seeking and self-serving and self-promoting and full of self-sufficiency and all the other ways that we as people might be proud. God stands against that. But in contrast to that, God gives grace to the humble, to the, the lowly, to those who humble themselves in relationship to others. He gives grace to strengthen them. He gives grace to honor them. He gives grace to help them. His favor is upon them. So Peter makes it clear that leadership does not confer superiority 
uh, on those who have it. Like if you're an elder, you're not superior. You're supposed to be humble. You're not supposed to be proud, self-serving, arrogant, and self-seeking. No, you got to clothe yourselves with humility and lay down your life for those in your care. So leadership doesn't confer superiority and followership doesn't mean less than, right? Like to be a non-elder and arrange yourself uh, under the leaders and submit to them, it doesn't mean you're less than. That's just, this is just the way we're supposed to carry out the new family of Jesus. There's got to be some leaders to help organize the whole thing and care for people and take uh, charge of how we're going to follow Jesus in the midst of whatever circumstance we're in. And so leadership doesn't confer superiority. Followership doesn't mean less than. In Christ, all our relationships are to be marked by other-centeredness and humility. And everybody is supposed to have each other's best interest at heart. That's what it means to lead. That's what it means to follow. That's what it means to be the new family of Jesus. We all relate together for each other's best interest, not serving ourselves.